This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to This Week. I'm Linda Mottram. Coming up, a pivotal moment for the US Supreme Court, challenging precedent and losing public support. The problem when you lose the public confidence is that people no longer follow the law. And I think we're already starting to see some shades of that sort of anarchy with our January 6th attack and other kinds of things. And rolling blackouts in China, as well as fears of a cold winter in Europe. What is going on with the world's energy supplies? But first, our political leaders are struggling with how to deliver us a credible national integrity watchdog. And the case for a strong model appeared to take a blow this week as debate roiled over the resignation of the New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian. She chose to go after the state's independent commission against corruption announced that she's the subject of a probity investigation. It unleashed an avalanche of criticism of the New South Wales ICAC from her federal coalition colleagues. ICAC out of control means that the bureaucracy reigns supreme. Lives destroyed over trivialities. Our careers ended over investigations that have gone nowhere. The Prime Minister Scott Morrison weighed in too, not just criticising ICAC, but rejecting it as a model for a federal body. We have a set of arrangements at a federal level uh, that can be built upon, but certainly not going down that path in New South Wales. And I'm sure there are millions of people who've seen what's happened to Gladys Berejiklian and will understand that that's a a pretty good call not to follow that model. But ICAC has its supporters, like the Greens leader, Adam Bant. If politicians are running scared, then obviously the ICAC is doing its job. Well, integrity and transparency campaigners have been calling for a Commonwealth Integrity Commission for years. The Morrison government proposed one three years ago. It may see the parliamentary light of day by the end of this year, as a federal election looms. So what should a federal integrity body look like? And is the New South Wales ICAC out of control, as some are claiming? Well, I think the short answer, Linda, is there's really no evidence that it's out of control. AJ Brown is from Griffith University's Centre for Governance and Public Policy. He's the lead author of a report for the group Transparency called Australia's National Integrity System, The Blueprint for Action. Certainly there's been controversy around the New South Wales ICAC in particular amongst these different anti-corruption bodies. But we've got to remember that that controversy, which was really focused a few years ago, led to reforms of the New South Wales ICAC in terms of things like the point at which it makes decisions that it needs to make a public inquiry. And those reforms were led by former High Court Chief Justice Murray Gleeson, and uh, they went through. So I think we can be confident that this is a less out-of-control system than it certainly was before, if, if it arguably it was. And in this instance, I think notwithstanding the form of Premier's popularity, everybody has seen this coming for months, if not years. So I think this is something that simply has to be dealt with sometime and the time is obviously now. Now, in the cut and thrust, the political sort of backwards and forwards after the Berejiklian resignation, some political critics of the New South Wales ICAC have pointed to Hong Kong's ICAC as a better model. Um, What is their model and is it a better idea than the New South Wales approach? 
Well, the Hong Kong ICAC model is a law enforcement model of corruption. Um, so on paper, at least, it, it looks slightly narrower than the New South Wales ICAC model, which, which rightly deals with forms of corruption that include sort of grey area corruption, if you like, breaches of standards that are uh, potentially on that sort of borderline between criminal and, and non-criminal behaviour. Um, but the Hong Kong ICAC is in fact a much more powerful regulatory body that covers the private sector and corruption and, and cartels and anti-competitive behaviour um, in the private sector as well as public sector. And in particular, it functions like a law enforcement agency. So if, if it was going to investigate and wanted, wanted to interview a public official in these circumstances, then typically it would arrest them, bring them in and interrogate them in the cells and then decide what the evidence was and then decide whether to charge or not. And that's been part of how the Hong Kong ICAC has had an impact in Hong Kong because of the effectiveness of taking that pretty strong approach, as well as community education, awareness raising in general in a softer way. So it's really a very different model for a very different context. And I don't think that anybody can reasonably say that that would be an improvement upon our current model, either in New South Wales or anywhere else. So this is all uh, the, the matters around Berejiklian and, and her resignation have, have again pointed to the need for some sort of integrity body federally. Uh, we've been promised one for quite some time by the Morrison government. Uh, it's been working away on its plans. What do you think a federal integrity commission, an ICAC if you like, should look like? Well, I mean, after many years of looking at this amongst legal experts, academic experts, Transparency International's work, where we, we look at these things all around the world and then look at how a, a nation's integrity system stacks up, and that's been the result of our assessments, um, what's pretty clear is that, yes, there's a strong case for getting on with having a special purpose, if you like, federal anti-corruption agency. But it does need to le learn the positive lessons from the state experience. There may be some things that can be improved from a state level. There's no question about that. And there'd be something strange or wrong if that wasn't the case and wasn't the opportunity. But there are some very positive lessons about what we know works at a state level. And that includes some of the fundamental things like uh, having a broad scope to be able to look at grey area or non-criminal uh, misconduct that involves high corruption risks and not just very narrow criminal offences, for example. So there are those sorts of lessons. And then there's a, there's a range of issues where we really need to learn those lessons, and including also the ability to hold public inquiries and, and public hearings where justified, and for the commission to be accessible to any complainant, any whistleblower, any member of the public. And so these are some of the issues that are really going to be very fundamental in judging the final bill when it appears. Mm, I mean, that, the whistleblower issue is a whole sort of interesting area in itself that's been very vexed. I mean, you've actually outlined an extensive plan for how a Federal Integrity Commission should work. Um, do you know whether your plan has been considered by the government? Well, I think we know that all of the issues that we've identified, as have, as have many other people, are, are in the mix. We know that they're being considered. And I think we've got to trust that they're being very seriously considered. I mean, this is a huge opportunity for this government and this parliament to do something which will need to stand the test of time over the very long term. And if done properly, and also done in a way which is not partisan, which is not intended to say, well, you know, we're, we're doing something different to, to what the other lot would do. 
if we can forge that consensus, then we have a chance of the public having confidence and trust that yes, this is a, a good step, especially if the crossbenchers are also agreeing. It's very hard to imagine a politician who doesn't come into office and think, oh, I really don't want an integrity commission, not because I, I may be corrupt, I may not be, but gee, it's, it's politically tough, you know, to have to endure that stuff. I mean, how do you strike that balance, I suppose, between those fears and those concerns that MPs might have and, and the real need for transparency and accountability? Well, I think there's best practice. Um, there might be situations that, that different individuals can point to where, there's been very high cost publicity associated with integrity or corruption inquiries, putting aside the Berejiklian scenario, because I think it's a particular scenario. Um, but there's also good practice. There are an enormous number of investigations and inquiries that integrity agencies do, which are not publicised, which are done discreetly and sensibly and only get into the public domain where that's really justified and necessary. And I think we can learn from that best practice and adopt safeguards at a, at a federal level, which might then provide a good lesson for improvements that could be made at a state level in terms of having some better guidance around when it's okay for complainants to publicise their complaints, clearer statutory tests on when public hearings or public inquiries, in addition to private inquiries and private hearings, when they're actually justified so that that's a discretion that the Commission can exercise with confidence knowing that the right criteria have been addressed. There are things that definitely could be improved to provide that degree of security. But I think that the key lesson for the federal parliament and federal parliamentarians is that there is an overall need to strengthen the integrity regime that surrounds the federal parliament. I think we've seen that from numerous angles now. Now, in amongst all of this, despite that sort of sense of momentum around a federal integrity commission, um, South Australia has just moved to strip its commission of some of its investigative powers. What's happened there and, and how concerning is that? I think the South Australian example is a very good example of a government and a parliament that didn't do the hard yards of looking at other jurisdictions to really see what works before they either put in place the original model or then rushed through some reforms to that model, which are pretty inconceived. I mean, the result has been to make an already narrow anti-corruption commission even narrower to increase the level of secrecy that it's forced to operate under. And I think these are clear lessons that, although they might be sort of understandable political knee-jerk reactions to, to the sorts of controversies that, that we see recently, they're clearly steps that are going in the wrong direction and not going to be able to maintain public confidence in having an integrity commission at all. So that's a very big lesson for why the federal government, the federal parliament should get this right. So what chance do you think that there is sufficient momentum to get a, a quality integrity body up federally, given that we've all been discussing this for a very, very long time, AJ Brown? Well, let's hope that a long time means a quality result, because it is historic that all sides of politics, all players in the federal parliament from right across the crossbenches, as well as all the major parties, have agreed that this is time. Everybody in principle wants a quality, a high quality result. Everybody in principle is happy to innovate and not just copy the state regimes, but do something better. And so whether the legislation is passed in this term or in the next term after the election, we should be thinking long term and saying this is a 
once in a generation or two generation or three generation opportunity to really do something for the long term. If a government doesn't want to do the work to achieve that kind of consensus, then there is the risk that an agency like this will become a political football. And that's exactly what we have the opportunity to avoid. Governance expert Professor AJ Brown from Griffith University and the report on Australia's national integrity system can be found at the Transparency Australia website. Well, it was a pretty unremarkable beginning. I have the honour to announce on behalf of the court that the October 2020 term of the Supreme Court of the United States is now closed and the October 2021 term is now convened. Oh yay, oh yay, oh yay. All persons having business... When the US Supreme Court commenced its new sitting term this week, a dispute over groundwater in Mississippi and Tennessee was one of the first agenda items. If the taking of the water is exactly the same, I think there, the, the water would still be subject to equitable apportionment. But it belies what some say will be one of the most critical US Supreme Court terms in generations, with the potential to overturn some of the rights that Americans have enjoyed for decades. In a major case out of Mississippi this fall, the justices will decide whether to overturn nearly 50 years of abortion rights precedent. They'll hear cases on the death penalty, separation of church and state, and a major Second Amendment case that could establish a right to carry a handgun outside the home. Of the nine justices on the court, six are now conservative. Three were appointed by Donald Trump. As they've made their presence felt, the court's credibility has plunged. A recent poll found the court had just a 40% approval rating. It's dropped 18 points in a year. Well, Barbara McQuaid is a law professor at the University of Michigan who advised on the Biden presidential transition. We are going to see some real blockbuster cases on abortion, on gun rights, and on First Amendment protections for religion. So that alone would make it a very important term. But the other thing that I think is going on in American culture right now is that the court is really facing a crisis of confidence uh, from the public. I I think that uh, some of the things it's been doing has caused the public to feel that members of the court are more partisan than they are following the law. Some of the justices have even kind of defended against that and spoken out against that. But I think that crisis of legitimacy combined with these blockbuster cases have a lot of people watching the events at the Supreme Court this term. So just describe for us the makeup of the court currently, which of course is the result of an extraordinary opportunity that Donald Trump had as president to appoint three justices. Yes. So the court now has a 6-3 conservative majority. And that's a big swing. You know, I, I know many people in the United States who said, I despise Donald Trump, but I will vote for him because he promises to put conservatives on the Supreme Court. And then as luck would have it, he had an opportunity to appoint three. So that has been a very significant swing in the court's makeup. And it does mean, I think, that people are concerned that we could see a change in some of the precedents that have been 
on the books in the United States for a long time. Let's talk about some of those, and you mentioned a few of them. The abortion debate, of course, is the big headliner globally. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some say the court could be about to overturn the long-established constitutional right to abortion, established in cases like Roe versus Wade in the early 1970s. Is it about to do that, and how? Well, it's quite possible. I think, you know, ever since the 1970s, when Roe versus Wade became the law of the land, and it said that states cannot prohibit abortions before viability, when the fetus can live outside the womb. And that's around 24 weeks. So since that time, there have been challenges. There have been states that have tried to pass laws that restrict abortion earlier than that. And courts have consistently struck them down and saying, no, Roe versus Wade, you can't do that. And so in this case, out of Mississippi, there's a case that bans abortions after 15 weeks. And so I think most people would have expected that to go the same course. In fact, the lower courts, the trial court and the Court of Appeals did just that. They said, no, this violates Roe versus Wade. This law must be struck down. What's so different and so strange, and I think has people concerned, is that the Supreme Court said, yeah, we will take a look at that. The Supreme Court only takes cases if they think there is a significant legal question to be decided. If it's a slam dunk rejection, there's no reason for them to take it. They only decide about 80 cases a year. So they're very careful about the cases they select to make sure they are ones that are worthy of their time and attention. And so it would seem unusual for the court to take up this case simply to reaffirm Roe versus Wade. Mm. And so that says it takes four votes to, to select a case. There are at least four justices on the court who appear ready to do just that. Now, the question is, do they have a fifth who will be willing to overturn Roe versus Wade? And many people are concerned that with the replacement of Amy Coney Barrett for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, they now have that fifth vote. There's those other cases you mentioned, gun rights uh, and so forth. But there's something else I wanted to ask you about that came up at the end of the Supreme Court's last term, and that was a matter to do with voting rights, which is also so fundamental in a democracy. In a nutshell, what happened there? Well, the court has been battling voting rights issues for really decades. And one of the things that has been happening is there have been the passage of laws that erode voting rights, states that are looking to engage in gerrymander or to suppress voting rights. And so far, the court has really taken itself out of the equation, saying these are political issues that should be decided by political means. But of course, if politics mean that people are cheating the system to hold on to power, then political solutions aren't really going to solve that problem. And so I think that also concerns people about the future of voting rights in this country. So these are such fundamental elements of America's democracy, the established right to abortion, as you described it, you know, the importance of voting rights, notwithstanding that tension that's been going on. Is America's Supreme Court capable, do you think, in its current formulation, and indeed, in I guess previously, of really representing what the American Constitution envisaged the Supreme Court would represent? I don't know. And I think that's where this crisis of confidence comes in. You know, certainly justices have their own worldview. When a president appoints a justice, they choose people that they think are going to have the worldview of that party. And so that, I think, is to be understood. But then it is expected that they will apply the law with integrity. And that means following precedent. So in the case of Roe versus Wade, for example, the the tests for whether to overturn precedent are things like whether the public has relied on it, um, whether other laws have developed around it that make this law now obsolete, whether the facts or law or under, our understanding of those things has changes in such a significant way that we ought to 
revisit the issue. None of those things has changed. And in fact, all of those things cut in favor of following precedent. People have relied on this as the law of the land. The law has developed consistently with an understanding that Roe versus Wade is the law of the land. And so if the court were to you know, suddenly jettison that just because the makeup of the court has changed, then I think it will be a real blow to public confidence in their work. And I think it will undermine public integrity to the point where I, I don't know that people, you know, the, the problem when you lose the public confidence is that people no longer follow the law. Um, and I, I think we're already starting to see some shades of that sort of anarchy with our January 6th attack and other kinds of things. Mm. And I guess it's worth noting there are some numbers around the public approval. Um, I think the court's public approval is about 40 percent. That's down 18 mm-hmm. percent since 2020. That's significant, isn't it? It is. And, you know, I wonder to what extent, I mean, there's the public faith in all of our institutions has gone down. And what's so vexing to me is that you would think that in this modern era where we have more transparency, more information about the work of the courts and other institutions, that our confidence would grow. But instead, it's kind of just the opposite. We've seen how the sausage is being made and we don't like what we see. (laughs) (laughs) And the, the justices out defending themselves, the conservative justices, is that unusual to see? It is very unusual. And in fact, I, I think it's ill-advised. I am sure that this is a strategy that they think they need to get out there and explain to the public that they're not partisan. But every time they do it, they say something that makes, you know, it, it, you doth protest too much. I mean, a- Amy Coney Barrett gave her speech where she said, it is my goal to convince the public that we're not just a bunch of partisan hacks. That was her phrase. But she said it in the presence of Senator Mitch McConnell at something called the McConnell Center at the University of Louisville. Well, if you want to portray yourself as something other than a partisan hack, don't hang out with the partisans. And so I I think they shoot themselves in the foot when they do these speeches. And I think they're better off following the old adage that courts should speak only through their orders. Barb McQuaid, very good to speak with you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Linda. Energy prices are continuing to surge around the world, with the cost of both coal and gas at unprecedented levels. And global markets are buckling under the strain. The UK government will consider temporarily nationalising energy companies after several retailers collapsed. There are fears about shortages in Europe ahead of winter, with calls to establish a strategic gas reserve to ensure supply for the EU. We are heavily dependent of imports. 90% of gas is being imported. 97% of oil is imported to the European Union. So we are very much dependent on the suppliers. The world's largest consumer of coal, China, is experiencing a major energy crisis. Cities continue to be hit with rolling blackouts as provinces ration power, forced to operate under consumption limits. And yet there is plenty of coal and gas in the world. Now, the word to remember here is volatility. Bruce Robertson is a gas and LNG analyst with the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis. What is actually happening in China is some of the power stations are extremely unprofitable at these levels because they have to send out electricity at a certain price and uh, the price of the coal and gas has gone through the roof. And so some of the power stations haven't actually even been operating, despite the fact that there have been these shortages. Now, in Australia, if the prices went up, the providers of power would just jack the price up to consumers. That can't happen in China? 
No, there's not that mechanism in, in some instances. You know, it depends where you are in China. Different provinces are different, but quite a few of them, they've had the problem where uh, the local power station owners haven't wanted to fire up their power stations because they lose too much money. Wow. And where does gas fit into this? Well, gas globally is having very similar problems to coal. Um, in Europe, you've seen the price go through the roof. In Asia, the price is over $34, which is five times the 2021 lows. Wow. And that's really the important thing to note. It, it, it hasn't gone up a little bit. It has multiplied in price. Why? Well, what we're seeing um, globally now is increased volatility in, in gas prices. And and this is a feature that's going to be here to stay. And it's very important I use the term volatility. I'm not saying that they're going to stay high. I'm saying that they're going to be some extremely high prices and also some extremely low prices. It's because we're going through a total energy disruption at the moment. So this has to do with climate change responses and countries trying to get emissions down? Yeah, most certainly. Um, we're seeing climate change responses. Countries such as Japan have said that by 2030, they're going to over-halve their use of LNG in their power sector. So they will be putting supply effectively back into the market because they won't be taking all their contracted gas. On the other hand, you've got enormous supply coming out of Qatar. So on the demand side, you've got this collapse in demand from the biggest market in the world for LNG, Japan. And on the supply side, you've got an enormous increase in supply. Qatar, the world's second largest exporter of LNG, is looking to increase its LNG production by 64% wow. by 2030. Uh, by 2027, actually. And that's a massive amount of LNG that will be coming on the market looking for a home. So we have very high gas prices at the moment, but as Japan, which I think is the world's largest consumer of gas at the moment, is that right? Yes, it is the world's, of, of LNG, yeah. yeah of, of LNG, of, of, yes. Of LNG, yeah, it's very important to make that distinction. Um, but, but of LNG, of the traded commodity, yes, it, 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 it is the world's, um, st still the world's largest. Uh, it will be overtaken by China round about now, sometime this year, um, Ch China will, will overtake Japan. But at present, um, Japan's still the largest and it, it's halving its use of LNG for, for electricity production, which means its imports go down by around a third. And that's going to, that, that points to more of that volatility you're talking about. That will start to, the supply-demand equation is going to change and so will the price. Yes. And, you know, last year I pointed out that due to what was happening in, in the US, we were likely to see much higher prices this year. And, and that's come to pass. But going forward, it, it's very, very hard to get the crystal ball out and rub it this time round, to be honest. <laughs> with you. All I can say is that I, I think we're in for a period of volatility. Um, there's massive disruptions to energy markets across Europe too. Are the same forces at work or are there different elements there? Um, well, there are different elements. I think we, with Europe, you've not only got this issue of the global markets in LNG, but you've also got the fact that the wind actually hasn't been blowing too much in the UK recently. And that's been causing a lot of 
trouble for the... There's been a lot lower production of wind than is normal. And so they are relying on other sources like gas, are they, to make up the difference? Yeah, yeah gas to fill the gap. And, and what's happened is the gas coming out of Russia through the pipelines, the Nord Stream pipelines that supplied Germany and, and Europe, there hasn't been as much gas flowing out of Russia for one reason or another. Gosh, it's a, it's a bit of a, a, a spaghetti diagram you're describing with a lot of different forces at play. Presumably some of these forces would be happening even without the imperative for countries to reduce emissions? Oh, most certainly. Most certainly. Look, a lot of these forces would be happening. You know, what's happening in Russia with supply would be happening anyway. What's happening in Qatar would be happening anyway. So in all of this, there's also us, Australia. We're one of the world's largest exporters of gas. What does it all mean for us? Well, going forward, you know, we are facing our major clients now looking at gas as a fuel exiting the energy system. And I think that that's a really important point, base point to make. Over time, we're going to see them wind their way out of LNG as a major fuel in the energy system. It will still form a niche fuel in in terms of the need for LNG for manufacturing and what have you. But in terms of usage in the home, it will definitely go out of household usage in in the next short while. And in terms of usage in in power stations, well, I've already outlined what's happening in our major customer, Japan. Mm. You know, it, it, it will wind its way out. Of, of the energy system. So has Australia got too many eggs in the gas basket at this point? Well, yes. In, in a word, yes. We have to be looking forward at energy sources of the future, not looking backwards at energy sources of the past. And 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 unfortunately, um, we've chosen to look backwards and, and, and put all our eggs in, in the gas-fired recovery at the very time our customers Our customers are saying they don't want the product. Energy analyst Bruce Robertson. Well, that's this week's episode. We'll be in your feed every weekend. And don't forget to subscribe at your favourite podcasting app. This week is produced by Madeline Jenner and Bridget Fitzgerald and me, Linda Mottram. Technical production by Kim White. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.